So what is, uh, what's ecclesiology? Study of the church. Where does that come from? Where does the word ecclesiology come from? Well, what word, what's the Greek word? Ecclesia. So what does ecclesia mean? Well, it does mean the church, but what is the, if you were to look at the definition, the called out assembly. Perfect. So, um, I say this all the time, and I don't know if anybody like just thinks I'm joking, or if uh, I feel like nobody, or most people I talk to don't get the depth of like what I'm trying to convey, and maybe I'm not conveying it right, but like words have meaning. <laughs> like, we should all think about that for at least the rest of the day, maybe not while, but especially when it comes to scripture, that's why it's so much fun to like look up into the to the Greek and the Hebrew uh, and do different word studies is because like God actually used very specific words to describe very specific things. So it's easy in passing to say, okay, Ecclesia called out assembly, that's the church. All right, let's continue. But uh, first and foremost, like that defines who we are as a body and what we're supposed to be doing and what we're all about. So primarily, the church is supposed to be called out. So what were we in? So if we were out, if we're called out, we were in. What were we in? We were lost in, in, in sin, in, but primarily the world, right? Uh, we were lost and without hope as, uh, was it, I don't know if that's Ephesians or Peter says, you know, without hope and without God in the world. So primarily what the church is called to be is to be called out and separated from the world. So um, most of what my uh, mission and uh, purpose is in, uh, you know, I say this is like what I've taken it upon myself and seen in scripture and, and whatnot, uh, and with the calling that I believe that the elders have put forth here in Grace Christian Fellowship is to view uh, in light of our current Western church atmosphere, how are we going back and re-examining scripture, finding biblical patterns and models, and where have we like gone wrong? Because if you look at the church today, especially in the West, um, like the church isn't called out. Like the church is the world, the world is the church, and no one's viewing the church as like something separate and distinct. It's just like another social club. Uh, and the world's not saying, oh, wow, like let's, uh, let's just, like here's this group of people that's so far different from us. Um, and, and nobody sees the difference. Nobody, you know, and the church isn't doing a great job of, you know, currently in the West being called out. You know, but you go to persecuted countries like Sudan, uh, where they have um, part of their government is an actual force of people who are going out and hunting Christians, uh, they're a little bit more called out than we are currently in the West. Uh, they live their lives a little bit differently than we do. So, you know, God uses that like we should be called out. We should be completely separate and distinct from everybody else. The church shouldn't, you know, and it should be viewed and it should be open and that should be apparent to everybody. Um, so, called out, and assembly. We should gather. <laughs> well, that's what we're doing here today, right? Uh, but that's supposed to be who we are in, in the definitions of who the church is. Should be gathered together, you know, primarily not just, uh, or not just on Sundays and once a week we come and we meet each other and we assembly and go home, 
but that should define who we are. That should be what we're all about, being separate and distinct from the world and assembling together. So, um, you know, 1 John 5.19 says that we know, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, you know, when we're looking at the called out aspect of it, you know, think of Moses, uh, you know, in the Exodus of the entirety of like what we are and what Israel was, was being called out and being led into the wilderness into a promised land. And we are the same church. We are the same assembly. We are under the same God. We are under the same, same head as Christ, uh, as Moses was. And, um, you know, there's the mixed multitude that went up and they also assembled, right? So the whole idea in modern culture today, you know, part of this is to equip everybody, um, you know, how to speak to others, but also just to raise our vision of who we are. Is that, you know, there's a popular saying now that's called the non-church church, which is just a misnomer. It's a misnaming. Uh, you can't be non-churched and be part of the church, right? You can't not assemble and be part of the assembly. That's impossible by the, by the very definition, right? So we're going to examine some things that I think as GCF, we do really well, and maybe I could have thought about it in a little bit better context because everybody that's here at 930 probably does it even better on a church commitment level. You know, even if as I look around, these are most of the volunteers, most of the people that work, most of the people that have, in, at least in their hearts, a higher level of commitment than, than maybe, you know, some others, uh, or maybe some newer people or something. Um, but, and we might even be able to say and examine that we do it better uh, the tendency is to fall into the, well, we do it better than this church, or we do it better than that church, but I don't see any scriptural precedent that says we could even examine ourselves that way, right? We all fall into that trap, well, you know, we're, and that's part of, you know, trying to examine the Western church culture and see how we can restore biblical patterns in the in scripture. Um, so we have to examine things, but we don't want to fall into a trap because we're not the standard. We have a high level of community, but guess what? We don't have a biblical level of expectations of community, right? Um, so, you know, just as in First Thessalonians, Paul says, uh, you know, two or three times that, you know, by these things you're doing well, but excel all the more. So, you know, as we examine different things, um, let's not get into the mindset of, well, we do that pretty well. Well, great. Thumbs up. <laughs> Keep going, right? There's no excuse uh, that we actually have to, you know, say that we can't continue to press into these things. So some just real quick word pictures um, that we see in Scripture. Oh, man, that's, um, that's my phone. I'm going to turn that one on silent. Uh, so real quick word pictures that we see in Scripture. And we're not going to dive into these too much, um, just to mention them, but you know, these words, God uses these words for a meaning, for a purpose. So we're supposed to imitate, and that's supposed to bring about some kind of thought process about who we are, right? Ephesians 2.19 uh, talks about us being in the family of God as citizens, an army, the church is called the body of Christ, um, a city, the heavenly Jerusalem, a priesthood, a temple, Israel, we're called Israel, and a kingdom, right? So all of these words are you know, word pictures that should bring to mind like the fellowship, the closeness of who we are and what we're supposed to be, right? Um, so I want to bring out, 
you know, in light of, you know, just us moving into a new church building in, you know, us growing um, and, uh, you know, the Lord being faithful to uh, fulfill his promises and his calling and election, uh, I want to read a couple of verses that also talk about, like, who we are as the church. The whole church should be doing these things. Um, the whole church is called to these things, but, you know, we live in a culture where, let's just say we don't have a high level of church commitment. I can jump from one church to the next church, and nobody really addresses that and finds it, you know, a problem. Um, you know, because if I don't like this church, I can go to another church. If I don't like this worship, I can go to the, this church for worship, and so on and so forth. And I'm not saying anybody in our midst does this, but just to, you know, equip everybody in how we disciple you know, part of the gospel is, you know, as we went through the evangelism course uh, the last few weeks of Wright State in the last semester and over into the summer, you know, part of what we're, you know, up against as we go out and share the gospel is we're calling people that, like, you actually have to become covenantally committed to a single body, a church. Now, as we're sharing the gospel, that might be us because we're the ones that it seems that God's using to at least preach to you at this moment. Uh, but it might not be. But you do have to be committed somewhere. You can't uh, be floaters out there. You have to. You can't be like you know using the body analogy. You can't be a hand that's separated from the body, and like assume that you're ever going to be effective or even alive, right? Because if you cut your hand off, last time I checked, it doesn't survive. So, um, you know, with us being called out and separate and distinct and being unified, being like a kingdom, like a temple, being, you know, built brick by brick, the heavenly Jerusalem, a body, an army, family, all these things. Uh, let's consider the words of Isaiah and, uh, and in Deuteronomy. So Isaiah 2, it's a pretty famous passage. It's also quoted in Micah 4. Um, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, uh, the basic understanding that uh, I see in the post-millennial hope as is that we are in the latter days, we're in the new covenant under Christ our head. Who has the law? Who has the words of God? We do, right? I guess what? I'm holding it in my hand. Everybody's got one on their phone. Uh, we have the law. We have the word of God. So we as the mountain of Zion, the church, the people of God who are called out and separate and distinct from the world, how should we be living our lives how should we be operating as churches, as the church, and what should the nations, what should the surrounding nations be doing? They should be seeing how separate and distinct we are. They should be saying, let us go there so that we could learn their ways, because uh, apparently it's better, like, so a basic assumption here is uh, that, like, I would never come and learn someone else's ways unless there was some kind of benefit to me, right? Unless... Uh, or, you know, you might be able to say, unless I'm just like interested in some weird thing, some weird cult, I might learn about it. But right now he's saying, teach us your ways. Let us learn because something's going on that we have to learn from them. So 
That's what we're supposed to be doing, but we don't see that here in the West, right? So you might think, well, that's just Isaiah. That's a small passage. It's quoted exactly verbatim in Micah 4. Uh, but let's go to Deuteronomy 4. Um, and let's just look at, I'm going to read verses, Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. All right, keep in mind this is as uh, Israel has been called out from Egypt. This is probably getting close, because it's Deuteronomy, getting close to 40 years in the wilderness, uh, whereby Israel has been taken out of Egypt, and now God's in the process of taking Egypt out of Israel and leading them to the promised land. And uh, so chapter 4, verse 5 through 8, I've always found this like super amazing for various reasons. Uh, See, I have taught you my statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it, keeping them, keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today, right? So um, that should sound kind of familiar. Uh, Right off the bat, uh, you know, uh, as we are Israel, as we are the church, uh, we're called to do the same things, right? It's a pretty popular passage in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, right? You are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill, right? Uh, No one lights a lamp and hides it under a basket, but it's set on a stand, so it gives light to all in the house, so that whoever sees your good works will give glory to your Father who is in heaven, right? So that's what we're supposed to be um, as the church. That's our, our goal. That's who we are, right? So you might think... uh, you know, of just how, you know, how we operate internally, that we have just like bylaws and everything. But so what's the law based off of? How did Christ sum up the, the law, the Ten Commandments, all the statutes and case laws? Love God and love your neighbor, right? Uh, Christ actually said that all of the law and the prophets hangs on these, right? So when you read Deuteronomy, when you read Leviticus, when you read Exodus, when you're reading all these laws, if you don't have the mindset that says, this is how I love God and this is how I love my neighbor, then you're reading it wrong, right? If it's just, I just have to obey and whatever, uh, which we fall into, or at least I fall into, you know, quite often of, you know, how does this even apply to me? Like, I don't have any ox. I don't have any goats. I wish I did. Or at least some, some chickens or something, right? Uh, but that's another story. So, uh, you know, I was actually thinking about this because, you know, it's interesting to me to read the case laws uh, and how this applies to us is going to, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but uh, think about it for a minute for Exodus 23.4. Um, so Exodus 23 comes just two chapters after the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, whereby God starts explaining to Moses, who's going to relate to the people, you know, not just the Ten Commandments, but what they mean, right? So uh, not just like you shouldn't murder, but what murder means. So God's very... Very detailed in this. So, uh, this has to do with stealing. You know, thou shalt not steal. Exodus 23, 4 says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, 
you shall bring it back to him. So that doesn't say, you know, uh, God chose to use the words and the relationships. If you meet your enemy, your enemy's ox, your enemy's property, going astray, you shall bring it back to him. That means that you have to have a personal commitment, first to God, uh, and then to your neighbor, who is your enemy, uh, in this context, in this, in this uh, case law, whereby you have to actually go out of your way if you're seeing your enemy's property going astray to return it to them so that they don't lose profit, they don't lose their property, and you actually have to sacrifice yourself for somebody else, right? Is what he's saying. And if you don't, that falls under stealing. So think about that. So you can't go... Uh, I think about this often where like, there are situations... Uh, where we'll, like, this is just, like, you know, kind of nominal to some degree. Um, you know, the world has its standards, which is called finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Right? We have Christians lost and found. <laughs> right? Like, the lost and found is a Christian concept. Right? The world operates in finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Right? You see somebody, uh, you're walking around, uh, you find money on the ground, lost money, right? What's our instant thought? Sweet. Praise God. He must be blessed. He must be blessing me. The favor of God has fallen upon me. You know, and there's like a small group of people, like there's like some old lady, like who's got like thick glasses on and she's counting her money. And I'm just like, wow, like the Lord has really blessed me. You know, uh, no, like we actually have a responsibility you know, even if it's our enemy, to go out of our way to serve them, to love them, right? But, uh, so think about that when, when you read these things like that, that all the mountains, all the other hills are going to stream to the church because we have the law, we have the words of God. And we don't just have them, we're supposed to operate in them, right? So, um, you know, I had an opportunity, I think some other people, you know, as we're working on the new church building at Spalding, uh, have been able to talk to some of the neighbors and, you know, just about, you know, the last owners of the building that we're moving into. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, it became kind of apparent that, like, even our neighbors that we don't even know yet that don't know us don't respect us and don't like us that much, <laughs> right? We're civil, uh, but there's, uh, I talked to one of the neighbors that, you know, kind of like uh, passively aggressive, passive aggressively, you know, suggested to me that, like, hope we keep up better with the property, and it's a burden on him, and he's got, like, nice shrubs and trees, and, uh, and you know, started talking bad about, you know, others in the neighborhood, and I'm just like, well, you know, we'll try. <laughs> we'll see how many, oh, wait, hold on, I was going to say, we'll see how many workers we get, but I told, we're not talking about that. Um, so, you know, what I want to do is raise everybody's view of the church and who we're supposed to be and how our community is, you know, not just grace to the world, but uh, grace to its members, really. So God's foremost and primary agent on the earth to push back darkness and hell is the church. But judgment starts with the house of the Lord, right? We all know, uh, I quoted earlier, Matthew five twelve: we have the light of the world, a city set on a hill, we're the salt of the earth. Matthew sixteen eighteen: 18, uh, you are the... You are the Peter, you are the rock, or you are the church, and on this rock uh, I founded the church, totally paraphrasing, and the gates of hell shall not prevail, 
right? So I read that and I'm just like, heck yeah, let's go get them, right? But that's not like the major scriptural precedent for the church is to go out and get them right away. The primary thing God wants to do, right, just like taking us, taking Israel out of the Exodus is, I'm sorry, taking Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus is then taking us through a process of taking Egypt out of us, right? Um, I just taught, uh, I'm going through scripture verses with Lily and teaching her all these, or trying to teach her, she's up to three, which I'm pretty proud of her. She's almost got one for every year she's been alive. Uh, Bible memory verses, and I'm starting with just what does the word say about the word? And, you know, uh, we could put her on the spot, go down and get her and bring her out of Sunday school class or whatever and say, like, what does Deuteronomy 8.3 say? Mariah, I'm going to call you out because this is a, no? No? Okay. <laughs> you, you, you've got a Bible right in front of you. Uh, you could have looked it up. So, you know, it's one of the ones that uh, is easy to remember. You know, man does not live on bread alone, but man lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Uh, that's the easy part to remember. The whole verse talks about, uh, you know, these 40 years I've led you in the wilderness, and I've led you out so that you'll hunger, so that you'll thirst. And you're just like, oh, thanks, thanks, thanks Lord. <laughs> I, love, I love being hungry and thirsty. And he says, so that you'll know that man does not live on bread alone, but that man lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Right? He says, I'm taking you through a process. I'm taking you into the desert so that you'll rely on me, seek me and my ways, and live according to them, and I'm going to lead you into the promised land. Right? So I want to look at uh, a couple verses that I normally use. Um, in, those are just the ones that are like most astounding to me. That, you know, and when I meet with people, uh, about like what does church commitment look like? Not like how much time are you giving, not how much money, you know, all those things are like secondary or, you know, tertiary down the line, uh, which is why like, you know, there is like in my back of my mind, it's like if they really get it, maybe they will serve more, you know, but, uh, or whatever. But, you know, it actually starts with like, you know, what is the level of individual government and commitment in each individual's heart to the body that the Bible just assumes, what Scripture just assumes that we have. Um, you know, we just live in a Western individualistic world uh, and nation where, you know, we can, if we don't like Grace Christian Fellowship, we can go to our friend's arbor, uh, Reformed Baptist Church, and that's a great congregation, or we can go to the church in uh, East Dayton, or we can go... Uh, to one of the other hundred churches within a mile, right? Uh, so, but but it's not so in Scripture, right? We've been more influenced by the world and its standards than we have been by Scripture. So, uh, let's start with uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen: Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this... Let them do this with joy and not with, uh, man, so whatever I typed on here, I put froning without groaning. I've got some typos. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So I'm not focusing on the obey, obey your leaders and submit to them. That's the direct commandment, right, that we have from the writer of Hebrews. But he's saying, like, so you would have to know who your leaders are. You would, they would have to tell you something for you to obey, Right? I don't know if it's common out there uh, for 
church leaders or pastors or shepherds or, or deacons or whoever to like tell their congregation to do something. <laughs> I, I just don't know. I've been here for like four years and uh, my previous life, I was in church, in churches, but in rebellion to Christ. So I was in rebellion. So they were probably telling me to do something, but I, was, I wasn't listening. Uh, so the, the other assumption is you know, not just that you know you leaders, they, they've given you something to submit to, to follow the direction, um, but he says that they're keeping watch over your souls. Like one of the greatest graces I personally enjoy the most in the church is that we have shepherds, right? So this, um, we, we've talked about it, you know, in previous Bible studies at Wright State for those who have attended uh, about how the King James and some other translations started in Ephesians 4.11, translating shepherds into pastors, right? So the pastor, uh, the word pastor isn't a common word throughout scripture or idea um, in our modern sense. So when we say pastor, most of us would think of the guy that sits up here and preaches, which hopefully you don't start thinking of me of a pastor. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, but the word is shepherd, right? It's poimen or poimeno or something uh, is the Greek. And that points to like Jesus Christ is always being called the arch shepherd, the greatest shepherd. You know, and so you think of, then you should be able to think of like Jesus's life and ministry and he had, how he had his 12 disciples and how he washed their feet and cared for them and taught them and rebuked them and took them up to the mountain and revealed himself to them and led them and, and fed them. And like all these things is like how great of a care he had for those people, you know, even those that like he knew were just coming for the food and for the miracles and for the healings and would leave. And he, and he knew that was going to happen and he still uh, loved them and served them, right? So a shepherd is actually, you know, as an a, as a official position or leader or whatever in the church is, you know, so when we think of shepherd, we think of like, oh, sheep, flocks, we have to care for them, Right? So I personally think uh, and love the aspect and, uh, you know, the grace of God just in shepherding of shepherds of like, there is actually somebody that's supposed to care and love for your soul, which requires them to think about it and think about you and pray for you and, and fast and like, and like question God, like, how are we going to help these people and how are we going to lead them? And that's going to, that's a time commitment, right? For the leader to, to get to know them. Um, but it's assuming that like you're, you know, in saying obeying your leaders and submit to them for they're the ones that watch over your souls. It's assuming, uh, you know, that, that that's a good thing for you, that you're trusting in someone else that's watching over your soul, that you're not going to be the Lord of your life, right? That you're going to make, you know, Christ the Lord of your life, which directly means that someone else physically on the earth as a representative of Christ is going to be Lord over you in some capacity, uh, and sometimes that's your boss, sometimes, uh, you know, in different situations, but, you know, within the church, like, there should be shepherds, so I don't, like, I've, I've been to several churches in the last 10 years, been a part of them, and uh, in and out, and there's definitely, you know, there's an effort out there to, to shepherd, and that's a very hard thing when we're looking at the world and its standards of individualism and separatism, and I'm going to do my own thing, um, but, you know, really, um, like, that's, like, God's primary grace to you, is having people who are going to watch over your souls, that they know you, 
right? They're going to guard us from heresy. They're going to guard us from foolishness. They're going to nurture us into, into maturity. You know, and one of the things, if you read through, you know, I said this, uh, I say this to people quite a bit. Like, if you read the qualifications for elders and deacons, like, it's really not that high of a standard when you think about it. Uh, you know, for elders, uh, you can't be given to drunkenness. Deacons, this is why I like the idea of, uh, I don't know if I'd ever want to uh, press upon anybody to be an elder and maybe just settle for a deacon because it says you can't be given to much much drunkenness <laughs> or much wine, right? <laughs> so elders have a little bit higher standard. Uh, you know, be above reproof. Like, don't be, don't have, like, you shouldn't have to, like, have people constantly correcting you. Um, but one of the ones, the qualifications, I think, is in Titus, uh, and it's, uh, it's somewhere else in Timothy, but not in the qualifications, is that you should be able to teach healthy doctrine, right? Like a shepherd is one that watches over the flock, watches over his people with healthy doctrine, with healthy teaching, with healthy guidance, right? So, um, you know, that's why if you guys, uh, I'll turn it because we're going to be reading some other passages. In 1 Corinthians 5, uh, is everybody kind of familiar with the passage where it's, uh, there's, you know, the big problem in, in the Corinthian church is that uh, there is somebody, you know, there's tons of sexual immorality, which he says shouldn't even be named among you. But uh, there's someone that says reported among you that there was somebody who's, uh, you know, pretty much having sex with his father's wife, his, step, his stepmom, and bragging about it. And it says, uh, when you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of, the, of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may, may be saved in the day of the Lord. And skipping down um, to verse 13, it says, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. I, you know, I often say that uh, Romans 9 is the most avoided passage in the New Testament, uh, maybe whole chapter. But, you know, he's quoting from an Old Testament idea of purging those in the camp of Israel from among them for the sake of the purity and holiness and separateness from the world, lest we be stained by it, right? That there's, there are things that are so egregious to God, uh, so against his law, that at some point that you would have to purge somebody. And, you know, that's you know, normally called excommunication. So, you know, we've had to deal with that personally as a church, uh, you know, within the last year or so. But, you know, so think about like in our modern culture, like if you had to, if someone got excommunicated, like they'd be like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'll just go to the church next door. No big deal, right? But like, you should be like, you should be like crying. Like if you came to the point of like, holy crap, my sins are so egregious that I'm being kicked out of the holy assembly of God, the heavenly Jerusalem to find camp otherwhere. Like I'm going back to what, uh, what First John says, uh, I'm going back to the world where there's no hope and lies in the power of the evil one. Like, you should be like super scared. Um, you know, so it's not this like spirit, it is, you know, there is a spiritual aspect of handing someone over to Satan of, you know, but like it's really because you're going out into the world. Like you're not going to be under the protection of shepherds and guides and the community of the flock. You're not going to be operating with us anymore. And we're casting you out, hopefully and prayerfully that you'll repent and come back to the Lord and we'll welcome you back in. But that should like, you know, I've, 
um, you know, uh, heard of excommunications and, you know, the different things churches have had to deal with uh, in our modern era. And people are just like, no big deal. Get up, go to another church, continue sinning. They won't know about it and we'll all be good, right? Until they find out and I'll get excommunicated from them unless they, uh, unless they're cool with it or whatever. So it's supposed to like, you know, um, it's not like a popular idea uh, when Paul says, uh, you know, we're supposed to judge those inside the church, purge the evil person from among you. <laughs> Paul, like, where's the love? Where's the love, Paul? Where's the tolerance? Right? That is the love. Right? Uh, you know, God is an all-consuming fire. He, uh, we're called to be holy as he is holy. And, uh, you know, an unholy church, an unholy community that's putting up and tolerating sin and defilement in its midst won't be blessed and won't be honored and won't be able to come close to the Lord, right? So that's a pretty, like, crazy passage. Um, you know, so let's look at, uh, before we go to the, I want to talk about 1 Corinthians 6, um, against lawsuits and whatever against unbelief, or against within the church. Um, but before we go that, let's look at 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. And for the sake of time, I'll probably just give you the overarching idea. Um, you know, verse 3 starts with, honor, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has grandchildren or grandchildren, let them first learn how to show godliness. Uh, verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. That's a pretty high standard. Uh, but refuse to enroll younger widows. Right, then um, I'm going to skip to verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So there's some passages like in Scripture that we read and we're just like, we either like read flippantly or read and like, oh, that's pretty cool. And you think about like in context, you know, of the early church, you know, Acts 6 starts, verse 1 start, starts about that there was widows being neglected in the daily distribution of the food. Uh, and like we just, that's one verse, but it's like it says so much about who they were and how they were operating that they were like caring even for their physical needs, right? So, you know, the grace of God that we see in Scripture you know, isn't just for, you know, spiritual needs and growing up, but it's also like the church community and the body is supposed to like care for one another, right? James says uh, that, I think I've got written on here, James 2, 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Right? We all, we all quote and we all know, you know, faith without works is dead, but we're supposed to actually provide and be a community that knows the physical needs of those around us, right? The assumption here in First Timothy is that I know, you know, whether someone is 60 years old or not, uh, whether they've been the wife of one husband, whether they've had a reputation for good works, whether they've brought up their children, whether they've shown hospitality, whether they've washed the feet of the saints, whether they've cared for the afflicted, right? You would have to like really know somebody and they'd have to 
be really plugged into the church, really plugged into the community. And, you know, although, so just a sidebar, just a, I don't think like, I think this is a reference in a guy that Paul uses to Timothy in this situation, and we're supposed to use it as a, as a model. Now, I wouldn't, so you can get in terms of legalism. It's like, well, she's 59, uh, so she doesn't quite get it. Like, don't give her nothing, right? No, you're supposed to use wisdom um, and this and apply it appropriately. Uh, but it's like, so he's not saying, you know, like help them to find some government assistance and point them somewhere else and point them to the state and point them, you know, we can help you find, like those are all good and wonderful things that we can utilize and I love uh, that we're so blessed as a nation that we can have. But Paul's saying first and primarily the family members, if they have any believing family members, but if not, like it's the church's responsibility. Our members are our responsibility. We need to know their needs. We need to know what they're lacking. We need to know their character. You know, and, he's, and he makes the case like, let them be enrolled if they've been doing this, if they've been so plugged in community, if they've had a heart. Like they've given so much. I think one of the things Paul, I think Paul is saying here is like, these women who are widows, which probably, uh, you know, so what's the, why do you think that there was such a problem with widows in the first century? What's that? Uh, no, although it could cause guys to die earlier. <laughs> What's it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you look at the persecutions of the early church, uh, I think a lot of it's because the Christians are getting persecuted, right? So, uh, you know, if you look at the widow situation in Acts 6 and the widow situation here in Timothy, which I'm not, I'm not sure... Uh, Contextually, where Timothy is at, I know he was sent to Ephesus and, and to Corinth and, and different things. Um, but a lot of it was due because of the, the great persecution of the early church. So a lot of these widows had to have husbands in the church that were dying because they were part of the church, because of their faith, because of their allegiance to Christ and not to Caesar. So, you know, when we come back to 1 Corinthians 6, where there's a dispute among believers and they're going to the state, the same state that's persecuting them, Paul's like, what are you doing? Right? So, you know, this is like, we read this and we're like, oh, that sounds great. But uh, like he's saying, this is the church's responsibility and, and burden. Um, Kyle made a comment of the, the Romans 9 passage that we put in the bulletin, which I wasn't even planning on using. <laughs> I just needed a scripture to put in there. Uh, that kind of made the point. But it says like, we're members of one another. Right? We're supposed to know like, uh, if I stub my toe or my finger, like that it hurts and there's a need. Right? I need to know if I need to clip my toenails or uh, whether I need a haircut, right? Part of the body has needs, and we're supposed to supply that. And, you know, again, like, I think we do, like, a really great job um, as Grace Christian Fellowship, uh, especially us sitting here, these individuals in particular, but, like, we're supposed to, like, ex excel all the more. Because um, I'll give a little bit of a... Oh, man, I'm running out of time. Uh, we're, like, halfway done. Uh, you know, a little bit of a, like, how I'm, you know, starting to view things. Like, we have, like, a, a great culture in the West of parachurch ministries that are doing the work of the church. And thank God that they are. Like, I am so glad that God is raising those up. Um, but I don't, I think that's something that the church has to recapture. So, 
real quick, the most shocking to me, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. I'm just going to read this uh, passage real quick, explain a few things. It's one of those uh, things where you're like, you're praying and like, I don't know anything about anything. Like, and I'm praying like, Lord, how am I going to talk for 45 minutes? And then you get up here and you, you get halfway through an outline. Um, so 1 Corinthians 6, like think about this as how much like personal commitment you would need and how much of grace of the Lord this is, is that Paul's saying to these people. Uh, so this is right after, think about this, Paul's addressing issues in the church and he says, somebody is having sex with their stepmother and their sexual morality and you guys are proud about it. What are you doing? And then he says, the other big problem is, is when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go, go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Like Paul's saying, there's sexual morality. And the next biggest issue is that you guys are defrauding each other, and you guys are not acting like the body. You're not acting like the family. You're not acting like the heavenly Jerusalem, like the called-out assembly. And even more shame is you guys are going to the same law, the same people that are persecuting you. And he's like, what are you doing? Right? He's even saying to the point of, uh, you know, with the, you know, when we think of, you know, the, even in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we, in the same manner, in the same way we forgive those who trespass against us. Like he's saying, if there's a defraud, like why, why wasn't one of you mature enough to say, hey, if it's money, if it's bitterness, if it's a broken relationship, I'm going to lay that aside. I'll be defrauded because we can't lose unity. We can't, use, we can't lose our family atmosphere. We can't lose, we can't have any dissension, any division among us. I'd rather be defrauded. I'll lose money. I'll lose my time, my efforts. I'll lose stress, whatever. I'd be saying like, why didn't you guys like even think about that? Like is the grace of God not working out in such a way that like you even had an idea or nobody even came to you. Where are your shepherds? Where are the people? Like, do you have one person that can decide a dispute? And he said, he said I'm saying that to your shame. So in, uh, you know, so think about that in light of Isaiah 2 and the Micah 4 passage and the Deuteronomy that we are the true, well, Christ is the true Israel. We're Israel. Uh, we are in the new covenant. We are the church. We have the words of God. We have the law, which is the law of love, right, to God and to man. And as we move into a new community, right, we actually have a pretty good uh, reputation on Darst of, uh, you know, I forget the guy's name is Rob right across the street who really respects us. Um, and most people in the community, at least on Darst, you know, at Wright Brothers, we have a good, a good reputation, but we're moving to a new location. We might be going into a new school. We've got new neighbors, right? We want to build a reputation that says we love and honor God and we treat our members like our family, right? And the outside is supposed to see that, right? So John, 
1335, by this all men will know that you are my, are my disciples by the love you have for one another. All right, that's a promise. Isn't that the same thing that Isaiah was saying? You know, Christ translates that the law of love, when you have love for one another, that all men will know that you're my disciples, right? And are we welcoming in, you know, as we move into a bigger building with more pews, are we welcoming in others into the same community, right? Are we saying, you know, just as in the Exodus, I always like pointing this out because it's one, it's one passage in Exodus, I forget, it has to be like chapter 13 or something, that says, as Israel was leaving, who left um, yeah, as Israel was leaving Egypt, who went with them? A mixed multitude, right? They didn't say, oh, no, 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 you guys, <laughs> stay here for judgment. <laughs> There's more coming, right? No, they said, like, as Israel was plundering Egypt, taking their spoils, taking their gold and silver and their property that God was sovereignly uh, giving to them, others were like, well, I don't think I want to stay here. Right? They finally saw the grace of God and, and judgment on them and said, I'm going after the Lord. Right? I'm joining to the assembly. I'm going out to the desert. <laughs> right? I don't know what's out there, but it's better than here. Uh, you know, so just like a quick, you know, I love parachurch ministries and what they're doing and how the Lord, but, I, you know, I was recently listening. I think it's okay to say the ministry because they do a great job. Um, I was listening to a Focus on the Family podcast recently. And, um, you know, there was a story that they were using to, uh, as just this woman's testimony, there's a quick blurb at the end of the podcast that said, you know, she was uh, troubled. I think she'd maybe like, you know, been through like some marital problems or a divorce or something. And she listened to a podcast. She started reading her Bible, getting counseled, you know, through this ministry, and then, uh, you know, I think, you know, restoring large aspects of her life. I'm like, praise God, that is awesome. But where was the church? Why didn't, why didn't anybody step in? Was she part of a church? I don't know. None of these things were explained. But, you know, that's what I'm so glad that the Lord raises up uh, other ministers when the church is unfaithful, because he will. But that is the church's foremost and primary goal to take care of its members. Right? Where were the people shepherding her? Where were the people leading her? Where were the the, the oversights? Right? You know. Uh, you know. So just think about how the you know kind of in closing. You know, think about how in three hundred very short years, going from Christ's ascension in Romanized Greekified culture, uh, who was persecuting Christians left and right to where they were even. Uh, destroying their cities, right, because they hated Christians so much. In 300 short years, the Roman Empire was overcome and became, you know, became started Christendom. And that's where we're headed. But we're not stopping at Rome. We're, our call is to disciple the nations, you know. So we have to disciple each other. We have to forgive one another, love one another, bear with each other's burdens, supply each other's needs, submit to shepherding and oversight, and everything we need to start re-examining, you know, to a greater degree to what it means to be the called-out assembly of the Lord. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great gift you've given us in your word, in the spirit, and in the community of people 
in the church, Lord, and in our present time, in our local uh, commitments that we can make to shepherds, to uh, to elders, to other members, to to new people coming in, to serve them, to love them. Lord, we pray that you would fill us so much with your law, with your law of loving you and loving others, that you would write it on our hearts, Holy Spirit, that we would become, that that would become incarnate in our community, and we would live, Lord, the way that you have called us to live. Amen.